Well, hello. Well, hello. Well, welcome to my podcast. Oh, wait. Is it yours? <laughs> Whose podcast is it? Well, I think, it, I think we both have a part in this podcast. No, it's clearly your podcast. <laughs> okay, not clearly. Um, uh, should we talk in German accents? Katenstein. Uh, I can't do German, but I could try for Australian. Okay. Hello. <laughs> We're here on our show. I don't really know the difference between Australian and, and British, though. It all sounds like trash to me. <laughs> oh, thank you. This podcast addresses serious topics such as suicide that may be upsetting to some. Please use discretion while listening. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Mental Illness and Me. My name is Daniel Sowards. I do the sound editing for this podcast, and I am the uh, guest interviewer for our lovely uh, interviewee, Katie Houston. Davies. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Jeez, I'm not used to that. Katie Houston Davies. Yes. <laughs> Man, you'd think after all the people that I've dated over the years that we've known each other, and you still beat me to getting married. I know. What does that say? <laughs> You're younger than me. Let's not forget that. Yeah, okay. Like, by two years. So what you're saying is, I basically um, dated no one. You dated everyone, and now I'm married, and that surprises you? No, it's not. It doesn't <laughs> surprise me. It's just, like, the universe clearly is, like, balancing the scales. One of us deserved what they got, oh, and the other one deserved what they got. <laughs> not true. Um, okay. So let's dive into this, because a lot of your your origin story in mental health is is unknown to me. I know bits and pieces of it, um, but I think it'd be helpful for your audience and for, for anyone who is going through the beginning phase of their, um, I guess, mental health journey or recognition of seeking out help to maybe hear, hear where you started and and how you got to where you are. So I think today we are going to be covering your youth into your early 20s, which is where I came to the picture, and I can add some coloring to that. Uh, (laughs) So when you were, when you were how old, uh, did you start noticing that you had some unique um, perspectives compared to your sisters? Well, I don't know that I, I didn't necessarily recognize it as being unique until afterwards, but I do know I can look back now and I can see where some of those behaviors started becoming evident. Uh, When I was in in elementary school um, or was, I was really sensitive and I was very, I took everything very, very personally. Um, I thought that everybody was mad at me when they weren't things like that. So there was a lot of emotional Mm -hmm. issues. I like to say that I was, a really easy child for my parents because I was always really honest and, and I was always well-behaved, but I was a difficult child because I was an emotional mess and just very, (laughs) uh, very charged emotionally by things. And when I got into up my upper grades, if I was given a reading assignment, I really struggled because I felt like I had to read every single word and understand every single word in order to say that I actually did my reading. So if my mind would wander and I would 
think about something else and not remember what I read, I would go back and reread the same part over again. And then my mind would wander again. And then I'd read it again. So it was really miserable for me because I had a hard time getting through reading assignments. And that was one thing that looking back, I realized now was part of my OCD. Yeah. And that's a lot of pressure to feel as a kid. Right. Where where most kids can kind of slough off a little bit and, and they're not weighted down by guilt or by um, concern over disappointing everyone in their life. Right. And my, I would say that my life was very, very characterized by guilt um, for, for most of it. And it was interesting because my parents didn't place any sort of really harsh or strong demands on me to follow rules or to, excel um, academically. They wanted me to do my best and they knew what I was capable Mm -hmm. of, but I was holding myself up to a very, very strict and hard standard. And anytime I would fall short of that, I would have a difficult time and, and it would be miserable. Interesting. So then how did that play out with, uh, with things like pop quizzes, like if you didn't get a perfect 10 or 100%, would you feel guilty or, or did, it, did it not uh, show showcase like that? You know, the first thing that came to my mind when you said that is when I was a freshman at BYU, my mom just laughs about this story. Um, I had studied for a test in my music history class, and I thought that I had studied well for it. But I went to the testing center, came out and had like a 64% or something. And I went into the bushes and I called my mom sobbing. And she said, well, where are you right now? And I said, I'm in the bushes. And she laughs and laughs at that story um, because I had never gotten a grade like that in my life. So it was pretty traumatic for me to get that grade. And especially because I had prepared for it and had studied. So there was some of that uh, as, as well when I was going through school and through college. I actually, I had an experience. This is one of the ones that kind of made me realize that I needed help. But uh, when I was also a freshman at BYU, I was in a history of philosophy class and we had to read, uh, I think it was like 200 pages to get an A in the class. We had to do 200 pages of philosophy reading. And if any of you have ever done philosophy reading, it is not easy. And snooze fest. Yes. And reading already was hard for me because I would obsess over whether or not I was retaining the information. And retaining philosophy is almost impossible. So I put it off and procrastinated till the last minute. And when it came time to submit my grade for how much reading I had done, I had only done something like 150 pages. And I wanted to get an A in that reading. So I went ahead and put down 200 pages with the intention of finishing my reading by midnight that night, even though the grade was due at five o'clock. So I was flying home to to California at the time and I started reading and I, I read 50 pages on the airplane, but obviously I didn't really retain a lot of what I read, but I finished what I said I was going to do. But then that haunted me for years, even after I served a mission. I was haunted by the fact that I had said I read 200 pages. And even though I finished it five hours after the due date, I was 
just completely wrecked inside. And I felt like I didn't deserve my scholarship at BYU. I felt like I had lied. I felt like my diploma was in vain. And I actually emailed the professor years later and confessed everything. Oh my yeah, it was. And of course, what? he had no idea who I was. Right. I mean, he had absolutely no idea who I was or why I was uh, emailing him. But he was like, oh, well, it sounds like you had the assignment done. It's no big deal. <laughs> it was one of those things where with with just a couple lines of an email, him saying, "Ah, it's fine. You were done. It was like I was absolved of all of that guilt over years and all of that feeling wow. like I had not deserved any of the grades that I got. Cause I, I was, I was a really good student and I, I graduated Magnus or what, sorry, what is it? Magna cum laude. And so, uh -huh. but then I, but I felt like I didn't deserve it, that I had lied my way well, there, you know, because of that. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, it's easy to get Magna cum laude when you're lying through it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you are such a jerk. <laughs> No, I had, but that, that's, uh, that's amazing. And just so impressive to me that you were able to, to still accomplish so much with that weight of guilt. And I'm sure that was one incident of many that, that occurred all during your undergrad time period. So like, I think that's one of the things that's been, that's been really interesting for me to know you so well is that when I hear, when I hear about people having, you know, severe OCD, or I guess I'm not sure how you define whether it's severe or mild or whatever. Um, but I think of people that aren't really functioning well, that are, you know, not like, not excelling through life, but you clearly like excelled through life, even with all of those hindrances. Well, it's interesting, because I think it's hard for uh, people who suffer with mental illness, because Sometimes you ask yourself, is this me or is it the illness? If I didn't have OCD, would I be as driven as I am right now? And if I go on medication to help my OCD, is it going to change me? Is it going to make me lazy? That was one of my big issues when I finally decided to start taking medication. I was afraid that I wouldn't be a good person because I felt like my OCD is what was driving me to make good choices and what was driving me to be honest. And I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to be a bad person you know, which was also part of the OCD. But I think that people with mental illness really struggle with that, especially when it comes to medication is how will it change me? And will I be a person that I don't know? Will I have to get to know myself again? And what will I be like, you know, and, yeah. but after taking medication, my anxiety was decreased so drastically that I remember at Thanksgiving one year, we were going around the table saying, what are you grateful for? And I just started crying. And I said, I am grateful for medicine because it changed my life so dramatically when my mind was not constantly going. Wow. How, how old were you when you started taking medication? I think I was about 23 years old. Okay. So that was after your yes. mission. Wow. So you even served a mission before medication. Yeah. That's actually where my diagnosis <sighs> happened. Um, I, I always knew that I was a little bit, you know, high strung, I guess you could say tightly wound. But when uh -huh. I was on my mission, it, it was an environment where we were working really long days and we were, uh, it was physically and emotionally taxing. And so that brought out all of the worst of my insecurities and, and obsessive thoughts and, 
and uh, neutralizing behaviors is what we call it in the biz. But um, I, all of a sudden that came to a climax when I was in a new country, learning a new language uh, away from my family. And I ended up talking to a therapist while I was there at the recommendation of my mission president, who's the person in charge of taking care of all the missionaries out in, in that area. And, um, she was the one who diagnosed me and then suggested I go on medication. And I said, absolutely not. I, I do not want to take medication. Cause to me, that was a failure to me. That meant that I was that I, yeah, that I, there was something wrong with me. And so I made it through, I made it through to the end because of some really incredible missionary companions who helped me and really saved me during that time. And it was a wonderful experience and it's still one of the most treasured experiences of my life. But when I got back, you know, it all came back again. So it wasn't going to ever go away. Well, and the mission is, is a mental health challenge, even for the most, the, the most mentally sound person. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so when it somebody already is prone to those issues, it becomes right. uh, even harder. Especially your uh, scrupu, scrupulosity. Yeah, scrupulosity. Yep. That's kind of fun to yeah. say. Uh, so then one thing that I did want to cover since we're talking about the early part of your life for, for any listener that has um, kids that they suspect might struggle with OCD or, or with other mental health um, issues, what, what would you say looking back now with hindsight, like how could your parents have, have supported you better or not, I shouldn't say better because your parents are amazing, but what, what could have been done um, that you think would have helped? And I know it's also a different time in the world as far as mental health is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that like you just said back in, you know, the nineties or whatever, when I was going through junior high and high school, it wasn't even really like, it didn't even cross my parents' mind. Like obsessive compulsive disorder wasn't really something that, really occurred to them. And so that that whole time, like, that wasn't even a thought that had crossed their mind, you know, and um, I remember when I was uh, in elementary school, I was obsessed with my weight and obsessed with being thin and feeling like I was fat. I was tall for my age. And wow. a lot of times eating disorders and OCD are extremely closely linked. Um, a lot of people who have OCD have eating disorders and vice versa. And um, I, my parents did have me go see a therapist. And I, I remember that. I remember that experience. And I think that that was really, really good for me. Um, but they didn't know exactly what it was that I was dealing with at the time. Um, I think warning signs that you can look for in your kids are when they are, they have a really, really hard time if they do anything wrong or they can't take criticism. Um, I think those are some signs if they are just devastated, if they have a, get a bad grade or if they get in trouble. Um, those are kind of some warning signs to look for. In my opinion, it doesn't always mean that they have OCD necessarily, but it means that there's some emotional issues there that they are not satisfied with mediocrity. And yeah, that, that when I was at the clinic, um, I, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but when I was at the OCD anxiety treatment center, that was one of the things my therapist worked with me on is you need to be mediocre. You know, we're shooting for mediocrity. That's what we're doing. <laughs> 
Wow. Well, I, I do that naturally. So that's great. Um, so one other thing, um, I feel like with, with like my siblings, when I'm talking to them about their kids and just hearing other people with kids talk about things, I know that there's still some, some pretty wide opinions or different opinions on, uh, kids and and mental health like things like ADHD are are we over prescribing kids are we under prescribing kids are we diagnosing kids with things that aren't really necessary like are two kids just too sensitive now like what and I know you're not you're not an expert on this but from your perspective what do you think the right balance is like oh that's such a good question you know what yeah, I mean? and I I don't know that I have the answer for it because I think there is some truth to wanting to have medication solve the problem. But I just had an interview mm-hmm. recently with the um, CEO of the OCD and Anxiety Treatment Center where I went. And one thing that he mentioned is even medication is only going to lower the symptoms, you know, 20 to 40% or something like that is what he said. Medication is not a solve everything. And And there has to be therapy in conjunction with the medication if you're going to do it. So I think that the process of of finding treatment for a child has to be so careful and has to be with a psychiatrist and a therapist working together to find the right balance of therapy and medication. And it needs to be a very thoughtful process because one thing he mentioned in the interview is that medication is not for everybody. And some people, yeah. it, it doesn't work for them or it is, it makes them too sick, but there needs to be a very thoughtful, careful process in my opinion. Yep. Well, and there's never going to be any harm that comes from going to a therapist. Right. Right. As long as it's a good one. I think that you have to be really careful. Um, one thing I'm a strong believer is really finding out what your therapist specializes in and what they have treated before what they're good at treating because therapy is such a broad, broad profession and there are so many different specializations. And sometimes we just think, Oh, go to a therapist. Well, find a therapist who understands specifically very well what you're dealing with. Totally. That's, that's actually a really good point. I've been hunting for a therapist lately and it's uh, you just, you need to find that right fit personality wise, but also expertise wise and also just lifestyle wise. It's, it's been really interesting to me since going through the last relationship that I was in and meeting with a couple different therapists, just like, you know, start with a clean slate kind of yeah. thing and just the diversity in opinions and, and, and thoughts on like how to approach things has been really eye opening to me. Yeah. And cause you go yeah, there's not just one right approach, yeah. but there is there are approaches that resonate more with me than others. Yeah, and I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed um, for this podcast or for the YouTube series when it when I did that before that said the exact same thing. You need to find the right fit as a therapist, and I think I knew yeah. that was true because I've had that experience myself. I've had some therapists that I'm like, this is not doing anything, but I didn't really articulate it that way. But and they, they really have encouraged, like, if it's not working within the first couple sessions, find somebody who is the right fit. And it's, it's so interesting how that's been such a common theme among people who have done therapy. Yep. Uh, okay. So 
So we've talked about your your youth a little bit. Anything else that you think would be relevant to add? Like, did did your mental health issues have any impact on your relationship with your siblings, your relationship with your parents that you had to resolve when you were an adult or, or anything else useful? You know, I think sometimes, um, well, I, it really affected my self-esteem. My self-esteem was in the gutter for years and years. And I think it, it kind of baffled my parents. They didn't understand, you know, they would say, well, you just have so many things going for you. You know, you, are talented in music mm-hmm. and you have all these qualities that are really positive that other people wish they had. And they, they had a really hard time understanding why I couldn't see that. And um, that's uh, totally understandable. I didn't even know why I couldn't see it, but OCD can really, really attack your self-esteem because again, you're trying to hold yourself up to an impossible standard. And every time you can't do that, you beat yourself up. And so I struggled really hard learning how to love myself. And that affected me in dating because I felt like no man would ever love me the way that I was. I never felt like I was going to be good enough. And I always was afraid that I was going to be a disappointment to the person that I was with. And so I would avoid relationships. And if I found a guy I was interested in, I would try to set him up with my friends immediately so that I could sort of, yeah. So that I could sort of, um, avoid the risk of disappointing that person. And yeah, I really sabotaged myself a lot because of those feelings that I had about myself and the fear of letting somebody down. Well, and that actually ties in really well to our introduction to each other. Yes. Um, so I was, I was trying to think about this earlier today. We, we became friends and met in a singles ward at BYU. Well, I was at BYU, you had already graduated. Um, but it was what, 2010? No, it would have been 2009. Was it 2009? Yeah. Okay, so we've already had our 10-year anniversary. Yes, actually, it might have been 2008. Well, I got, no, because I got back from my mission in 2008. Okay, so 2009. 2009, yeah. Okay. So I remember we met, and we don't have to go into that whole story, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, we can. It, we it's quite to. a tale. Tale as old as time. But one of the things that I remember so much is that from really that that first time that we hung out just one-on-one, I remember being baffled by you, seeing like this beautiful, funny, really put together girl who just constantly kind of dogged on herself. And I couldn't figure out like what what you were playing at, you know? Yeah. Because like you couldn't take a compliment ever, um, and you you also had a huge amount of baggage at that point from a really messed up relationship. True. <laughs> <So, Bro. laughs> like, you just had a lot going on in yeah. your life, and I was just Mister Naive, um, you know, not not understanding anything really in life. Um, but yeah. So in your early what was that? Your early twenties when I when I yeah, met I you. Yeah, I was twenty five. Okay, so 26. you were you were a couple of years into medication. Then. Yes, uh huh. And I remember at some point you were telling me about how you weren't always consistent about taking your medicine. Yes. And I, I 
still, in fact, I don't understand why. How, how does that work? Can you explain that to me? You know, I think it took me a long time to really get used to the fact that I was going to be dependent on that medication. Um, I mean, that's a, a whole other conversation, but I, I kept wanting to believe that I could wean myself off of it. Um, at the beginning, I should say, at the beginning of my medication journey, shall we say, I really did mm -hmm. want to believe that I could be done with it. I think it also made me really tired. And I just, I just didn't want my body to have to be dependent on a substance, an external substance. It just, to me, in my mind, it just felt wrong. And um, as I've gotten older, I have come to learn and come to accept that it is something I will need for the rest of my life because there is an issue in my brain that I was born with that misfires when certain things happen. And that is something that can be regulated through medication. And when I don't take it, it comes right back. It's not something that you can heal or change permanently. Although there are things you can do to help your brain react differently. Um, but nowadays when I miss my medication, it's because I forget because I have become increasingly more forgetful. That happens a lot with people who have hang high anxiety and, you know, some mental illnesses because their mind is always occupied in something else. So I am very forgetful, but in those beginning years, it was definitely because I was hoping that I could do without it. And is that a pretty common journey for people as oh, yeah. new to medicine? Okay. Oh yeah. I think people all the time have a story about when they went off their medication and it was not good. Because, and they did it because they were hoping that they wouldn't have to take it. I mean, I, I think that's a very common issue for okay. sure, but I've definitely come to peace with it now. Interesting. Okay. And okay. So then staying back in that time, another thing that I remember, I remember specifically um, going back, it was around the holidays to, to my family and, you know, we were catching up on what's going on in my life and I, talk to them about you because you were a very important person. You know, we had that whole thing. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everyone's going to be very confused and curious. <laughs> we were like lovers that were never meant to be um, <laughs> and never were technically. Uh, so, <laughs> but anyway, I remember talking to my mom and I was like, I'm so confused because uh, I am... I am trying to like build her up and I just want to make her feel good. And I was basically trying to um, solve all of your problems. Right. It's like yeah. the more that you would say, Oh, I'm not attractive. And the more that I would want to prove to you, like, no, you are beautiful. Like here's empirical evidence that you are in fact an attractive person or right, that you right. weren't like righteous enough. And it's like, you're the most righteous person I know. Um, so the more that I tried to like prove it to you, the more frustrated I became and the more almost turned off in like, like what, what does she want from me? Like, how am I going to help her? Like I'm, yeah, I'm it invested. Felt, yeah. It, it, it felt almost like a kind of like a betrayal because I felt like I was investing so much into into showing you like, no, I, I care about you and I love you so much. And like, I'm putting all this effort into to making you feel good, yet you're it's still not enough for you. So I was right. thinking like I'm not enough for this person. 
that's interesting. And I, and I also think that it comes across as a fishing expedition for uh, compliments for somebody who does have that kind of low self-esteem. It feels like they're always trying to get someone to uh, lift them up. And it, it's actually true because when you have OCD in whatever form, you are seeking for reassurance constantly because the reassurance then relieves your anxiety. But what happens is you become dependent on that reassurance. So if somebody reassures you, it makes you feel better for a few minutes until you have another thought that you aren't good enough or that there's something wrong with you. And then you need that reassurance again. And so your friends and family, they spend all of their time reassuring you. I mean, I would call my mom constantly and say, do you think this person's mad at me? Do you think that this thing that I said was okay? Do you think that this thing that I wore was okay for that function? Do you think that the, and it was, it was constant and she would spend all of her time reassuring me because she didn't realize that that's the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. And she actually came to the clinic and did a visit when I was in the program. And she said that that was one of the most eye-opening things to her when she walked away. She said, I've been doing it wrong all these years. And I was like, mom, you didn't know that. Like, you know, this is all about educating ourselves now that we have more information. But um, when you reassure somebody, it just makes the cycle continue. And so what you need to do is validate them and say, look, I can see that you are in an extreme amount of pain right now that you are having a lot of anxiety. I'm so sorry that you're feeling this way, but not say, oh no, you are beautiful. You are talented. You know, anybody would be lucky to date you or whatever, you know, I would have my mom say to me constantly, you know, totally. So that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned. And now in my, um, relationship with my husband, the therapist we visited and did a couple sessions before we got married. And that's one thing that they train uh, support systems, spouses or family members is to avoid reassurance, but to learn validation. And so um, it's great. And my, my siblings have all learned it as well as part of the clinic uh, training. And they will say, things to me that are funny when they can tell I'm seeking for reassurance, they won't give it to me, which you as my friend automatically <laughs> would never, you say that you reassured me, but you would on purpose not reassure me. And I think that maybe it was because you saw what was happening and you didn't maybe didn't identify it, but it was like, I could count on you to always tell me the truth and to not um, tell me what I wanted to hear basically. Oh, totally. Well, we got to that point where it was, it was so counterintuitive but yeah. it also, as soon as I started, like if you would say, hey, does, is this too uh, frumpy or, or whatever you would say? Or do you, think, do you think that I'm, you know, not righteous? And then I would like go into it more and be like, yeah, you're, you're going straight to hell. Yeah. Uh, that stuff, it would almost immediately like stop feeding whatever, whatever was going through your head right then. And you'd immediately kind of stop. And we'd both like reset and laugh yeah. and then move on. Right. Right. It's so interesting how you did that instinctively. And that's actually the kind of thing now that they do as part of training. Well, what could I say? I'm pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm I, not going to reassure you on that. Oh, no. Validate me. Uh, <laughs> one one other area that I think is really interesting, and I remember um, talking through this with you a lot, was 
during this time you were teaching at a middle school and I believe that was your first teaching job, right? Right, right. And middle school kids are just awful from the get-go, right? Like, right. they are naturally hormonal, awful little credence in the world. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you were one once. I, it was, but I was great. I was so sweet. Um, what, <laughs> oh. <laughs> what, what was like, that like for you um, professionally? That's a good question. And I, I think that professionally for me, it was difficult for me to discipline in my classroom because I didn't want, I wanted everybody to like me. And that was, I thought that if I did everything right, if I was the perfect amount of fun and hard work and I taught all the right songs and I, you know, was complimentary and whatever. I thought that I I truly thought that I could have everybody like me. All the parents would like me, all the students would like me, all my colleagues would like me. That was my goal really. And so disciplining kids is tough because you want them to like you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, especially in junior high, if you don't learn how to discipline, you have no control over the classroom. And I think one of the best lessons that I learned as a teacher, and it took me a few years to learn it, is that you will never ever make everybody happy, no matter how nice you are, because then you're too nice, or no matter how disciplined you are, because then you're too mean. And I having to learn that lesson was so tough for me as somebody who my mantra always was, if I'm trying my best, then I would be doing everything right, because I know the difference between right and wrong. That's what I thought it was like, I know what's right, and I know what's wrong. So if I was really trying my best, I'd be doing every single thing, right. So that means every time I don't do something that is a good choice, then I am not doing my best. One of the things that I remember you struggling with a lot uh, when I first knew you and, and for a good number of years was you would, you would obsess over religious things, especially righteousness. Uh, what, what was that or what is that? Is that OCD? Yeah, so it's interesting because a lot of people don't understand that OCD takes so many different forms. It is not what everybody originally assumes that you wash your hands a lot. Yes, it can be. That's called contamination OCD. People who have to like touch the doorknob every time they leave because it's a ritualistic type of OCD, or you can have superstitious OCD. Um, You can have uh, contamination OCD where you're constantly afraid that somebody's going to pass their germs to you as well. Anyway, so there's just lots of different forms of OCD and people don't realize that that. So scrupulosity is a specific form of OCD that is all about moral correctness. And uh, Paul Peterson, who was on the show earlier, he he always used to say that OCD goes in and attacks the things that are the most important to you and distorts them. And that's what has happened with me with scrupulosity is that I'm a very religious person. I feel very strongly about my faith and my beliefs. And so my OCD targeted that and twisted it so that I took everything to an extreme and created my own set of rules and laws based upon the direction and guidance that I was given by my church leaders. Mm -hmm. So I basically took a very strict interpretation of the law and held myself to every single letter and every single point. And for example, swearing. That was something that I was (laughs) raised to believe um, 
in my faith and in my family that swearing was not okay. It wasn't something that, you know, it, it didn't show respect for faith or mm-hmm. for, for God when you would swear. And so for me, that meant that if I ever swore, I was going straight to hell. Not, oh, swearing's not a good idea. And that's something, yeah, maybe once in a while you might let a word slip or whatever. No, it meant that if I did it, I knew that that was wrong. And so if I did it, then I was going to be condemned because that was a wrong thing and I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. And so I lived my life in this fear all the time of messing up because I knew what I thought was the law. And it wasn't, it was my distortion of the law. And so anyway, so that's kind of what scrupulosity is, is it is being obsessively honest. There's a lot of um, compulsive confession that happens. A lot of people have scrupulosity and it's not just people of my faith. They will go and confess compulsively to a priest or to another religious leader or confess to their parents or does that answer your question about what it is? Totally. Only other thing that I would I would just note as we're as we're wrapping this up is that during this time I I feel like I hear or I've read a lot about how some people with mental health issues are stigmatized as being selfish and just being too much in their head and they can just like get over things. Um, but my experience with you, especially back then, back in our twenties, not knowing what you're going through at all, you were one of the kindest, most thoughtful and sincere people that I knew, despite being uh, so anxious ridden, right? You were also an amazing support system. So I think that's a stigma that just is not warranted. And I, I don't really understand why people try to disparage people that are suffering from mental health issues and, and degrade them to say that they're being selfish. Well, it's because it's a, um, a medical issue that's wrapped up in the mind, you know, all these other things like your heart or your arm or your whatever, those are things that don't have emotions, don't have feelings. They don't affect your personality, you know? And so having a medical condition that sometimes can change your personality slightly or make you act in irrational ways, people assume that you can control that, that that's a behavioral thing that you're brain could stop if it wanted to. And what they don't understand is that there's a legitimate deficiency, or I should say a legitimate uh, condition or uh, issue in the brain that is causing that kind of thing to happen. It is not something that you can control without help and without resources. And it's just, it's hard. It's not easy. And, um, but I, and even a little voice said when you were just saying that about how I was kind and and generous, I, a little voice in my head said, well, was that me or was that the OCD? Um, but I think that now that I've had a lot of therapy and things, I've been able to, to realize that my personality is, I'm still me, but I'm just me with a lot less guilt and a lot less, um, and a lot more confidence, I guess. Ah, I love that. Okay. That's the perfect ending. That's perfect. <laughs> oh, good. Yay. Okay. Yay. This was cool. I'm this was really this. fun. Thank you. Yeah, this was really, really cool. Special thanks to Daniel Sowards for the audio editing, to Carrie Randall for the graphic art, and to Shiny Head Productions for the original music.